Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio podcast session number five. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, welcome to the Working Class Audio podcast, session number five. I'm your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks for tuning in. Really excited about today's show. Uh, you know, I'm actually always excited about every show, but uh, today's show is interesting because usually uh, we do our conversations over Skype. For our next guest, our Skype call didn't work out so well. We ended up doing our interview in person. So happy to tell you that John Cunaberti is going to be on today. And if you don't know John, John has done records with Dead Kennedys, Joe Satriani, Chickenfoot, Sammy Hagar, George Lynch. He's done quite a few records. So let me just play you a little snippet from uh, the raw components of this, this Skype conversation, and then I'll explain what happened next. John Cunaberti, welcome to the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's an honor to have you on, and I'm very excited to ask you a million questions. Well, let's try to keep it to, you know, 250,000. That sounds like a, a balanced approach. Now, uh, uh, Matt, I'm hearing a lot of static. I don't know. Are you hearing that, too? Uh, you know, I am hearing that. I now see I'm being an engineer here, so I'm thinking we think we got to stop the session and figure out what that is. <laughs> where where are you? Uh, I'm in Lafayette. Oh, you're in Lafayette. Why don't I just come over to your house? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Oakland. Oh, you are. Yeah. Why are we oh. Skyping can do it in person. Sure. Why don't you come over? All right. Where are you? I'm at. Okay. You're about uh, 20 minutes from me. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, John. So as you can hear, the call went south and we had to have John come over to the house, which of course, when I got off the phone, I was like, oh my gosh, John Cunaberti is coming to my house. And I don't get, get starstruck over people really, but you know, I have a lot of respect for John and we've only met like one other time. So I was thinking, oh, I got to clean up the house. And you know, I was getting a little nervous. So quickly threw up another microphone, did a little cleaning and John showed up and very gracious guy. Came in, sat down, and so we proceeded to, to talk, which we'll get to in a sec here. What I wanted to point out was we didn't go into, as you'll hear, we, I, I didn't ask him, oh, you know, what was it like recording with Joe Satriani? You know, these are questions and answers that exist already. Uh, there's the Double Stop podcast. I can't remember the host name, but he did a great two-part interview with uh, John over those kind of questions. And there's a tape op article about it as well. So if you're looking for those kind of question answers, that's where you're going to find that. Here we went into more freelance engineer business questions. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom. Very simply, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. John Cunaberti. Testing one, two, one, two. Hello. Oh. oh, yeah. I won't yell. I don't know if you're aware, but I was the one who was in cahoots with Romanowski at the Coast Building from 2007 until 2012. So Michael decided to keep keep the building, well, pay the, the lease? Yeah, the, the lease was coming up to, for renewal, and I was just, I was drowning. Yeah, I got it. I had to get out. I just came to Romanowski and said, I can't renew the lease on my half. It was a bad time. You didn't have the room in the back. You had A? Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. And you got it from the guys that were there prior to that. Yeah, because um, <clears throat> the guys ben, that were... Jonas. Oh. Yeah, so basically it was like Phil and Craig had it. Yeah, they, get, they got the console from Dan Alexander. Right. And we kept it there. Your that former, was an awesome console. Your it, former bandmate. Yeah, and I used I. I mean, you were in business with them. We were right? in business with them. In fact, I managed Coast on Mission for a few years. We had that eighty twenty eight in there. It was an awesome console, all ten seventy threes and uh, Studer tape recorders. And the room was in its <clears throat> heyday, essentially between Dan yeah. and Craig and Phil. Yeah, and then I think. Well, I don't know about after Dan left. Things started going south after that, because we moved everything over to Harrison Street. Which was a formerly Golden State, yeah. And that was a magnificent room. And we put two consoles together. Nat now lives over at Fault Line. Yes, one of them, half of it. Oh. 
Yeah, we had two of those things put together. Unless theirs is a uh, 48 input. Is it that big? I don't know. I've never worked over there. I saw a picture of it and I said, that console looks familiar, but I don't think it's the full length. Yeah. Dan might have split it back up. I I don't remember. But, um, and we struggled there. I mean, we were having trouble selling studio time out of that place, which was shocking to everybody in the business but things were beginning to fall apart in the in uh, in the business the groundwork was laid home studios were proliferating and we noticed that bands weren't booking 3 4 6 weeks at a time they'd book a week they'd come in and they would track we wouldn't see them again i remember chad blake came in he was working on a project can't remember the band and they were there they tracked and they left this idea that you would you know, track in a big room with lots of headphone feeds and um, facilities for a large band and people and, you know, all of that. And then you go to a home studio, not unlike your own, and do all your overdubs and then go back to a studio and do mixing. That started becoming more and more popular. Records were taking longer and longer to make. It sort of went hand in hand. The, the sort of um, obsessive, compulsive drive that a lot of people have really dovetailed with people being able to record at home because now they were they could sit at home and and indulge themselves for years. I got to say I've been in the music business in the Bay Area my entire adult life and it's always been a struggle. Hmm. The San Francisco Bay Area has has never been Nashville. It's never been LA for sure. It's never even been New York. That's not to say that there isn't a recording history here. Is Of course there is because there's a lot of famous recording artists from this area who recorded here. But it wasn't a place where people came to to record. So selling studio time has always been a struggle. I remember when we moved into uh, Hyde Street Studios in 1980, the former Wally Hyder's recording studio. You know, they had, I believe they had three studios, one in Uh, Los Angeles, I believe in New York, and then one in San Francisco. Not unlike the record plants, same sort of idea. Three identical studios that could uh, uh, cater to the needs of recording artists all over the country, and they could go from one studio to another, and they could be maintain a quality control. It was a it was know, like a, it was, a chain. Yes, it was like a chain exactly, where they could maintain a quality control no matter where the artist happened to be, hmm. and. Um, but what was the first studio to close? San Francisco. Wow. The record plant. What was the first record plant to close? San Francisco or Sausalito. Same thing. Yeah. You know, it's always been very difficult to get people to come to San Francisco to record records. And I would say like some of the major artists, Metallica, Green Day, mm-hmm. both have utilized or Bay Area recording studios, but then themselves have gone on to build their own studios. Yes, or or like in Green Day's case, I think they recorded their last few records in L.A. at Ocean Way, right? So, yeah, I mean, they had their own studio in Oakland. Right. But, you know, I think that there is, or there was, when there were, when record companies sort of ruled... That, you know, the record companies wanted the recording artists to work where they were. And they were in Los Angeles. They were in Nashville. They were in New York. That's where the record labels were. And they want to be involved. They want to come to the sessions. They want to hang out. 
So the A&R guys tended to throw more work to the to the local um, recording studios. It only made sense. An A&R guy who, who's working in Los Angeles, who's a mover and a shaker, why would he want to send a band to San Francisco to record? Right. So he could fly up there every weekend right. to hang it out would with be the for, band? It would be for selfish reasons of his own. Yeah, and all his friends who are in the recording business are in Los Angeles. In fact, one of your questions that you sent me about when we started this interview, one of your questions was about managers. And there was this really insidious relationship between record company A&R men and band managers, and then these managers who appeared on the scene to start managing recording engineers slash record producers. We used to call it friendola, you know, <laughs> where, yeah, I mean, if you're going out to dinner with a record producer and his wife uh, on Friday night, and then on Monday morning, your label signs a band, you know, to uh, make a record. Who do you think you're going to hire? You're going to throw that gig to. You're going to throw it to your friend, mm -hmm. right? And then he's going to recommend the studio he wants to record in, which is also a friend of yours. I mean, it was just the way it was. It's just, it's just how it is. Right. And, and that was something that was really impossible to break through. And this is primarily during the 90s and, and into 2000, you know, until Napster. And then that kind of blew everything up because because the money flow stopped. And when the money flow stopped, the first thing that went were managers. <laughs> because, you know, the, 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 the recording artists, or, or in, in my case, like the um, managers for recording engineers and producers, they would say, well, you know, you're not getting me any gigs. Um, what do I need you for? I can get this gig. Mm -hmm. You know, wh why should I be paying you 10, 15% of the proceeds from this project if I can get that project myself. When the money started getting less and less, you know, things, you know, we started dropping the managers and all of that. I don't even know if they still exist. There might be the, the handful cream of the crop guys, you know, like Chris Lloyd Algie or somebody like that who may still have a manager, mm -hmm. you know. And if you're getting lots of gigs, you know, people kicking your door in every day, you know, wanting you to mix their records. I could see why you'd want it some administrative uh, a layer, you know, to take care of all the business. But for all us independent guys, you know, those are the those days are over, really. Question about San Francisco or the Bay Area recording scene. Why do you think San Francisco never was able to become a Nashville or L.A.? What is it about the Bay Area that... I don't think the record companies were here. Okay. I think I think that if um, uh, you know Warner Brothers' main headquarters was in downtown San Francisco, uh, the local recording studios would have benefited from it. If you go to Los Angeles, you have all the major record labels there. You know, you have ten, fifteen, twenty of them, and and it's not an accident that there there weren't at the time hundreds of recording studios and some of the best in the world. And, and all of them were booked a lot, you know. But it all changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, for, so, for, for a number of reasons. I mean, if you saw the, uh, the documentary about Sound City, yeah. um, they couldn't keep up with the times. 
You know, people wanted SSLs. They wanted digital recordings and they just couldn't keep up. And, you know, there was a lot of reasons why things changed. It wasn't just uh, the internet. That wasn't the only reason. There was other, other factors. In your time in the Bay Area, in terms of surviving as a freelancer, what I got out of, out of the interviews I either read or heard pr- uh, prior to this one is that you basically went out and hustled. Yeah. You basically went out and, you know, found Joe Satriani and said, I think you're amazing. Yeah. Let's record. Yeah. I did that more than once. And it was, you know, a lot of artists. I, I would go, I'd hear about uh, somebody and or I'd go to a show or I'd, or I'd be working a show, you know, like mixing live and I would see some other band. So there were, there, there, I had a lot of opportunities to see and hear um, what was going on in the clubs. And I would often go up to them and say, hey, I really like what you're doing. I'd like to help out. I would like to record you or I really dig your band. I like to mix your sound. I, you know, if I heard something I really liked, I wanted to be involved. And so I would offer a lot of my services for free or whatever just to be involved because I really liked what they were doing. And I, and I guess I inherently knew that I needed a vehicle. I needed I was going to need an act or two to really propel my career. Mm-hmm. You know, going in uh, and doing like a TV commercial in the morning for, for two or three hours, you, you know, you might be able to make some money doing that and pay some bills, but you weren't going to build a career doing that. You were going to build a career by, like my friend uh, Mark Needham, by, you know, hitching his wagon to Chris Isaac. Yeah. Now, if Chris Isaac hadn't made it, as, where would, a, as a star and had that hit and did the thing, where would Mark be? Yeah. Well, he, he would have probably found somebody else. My guy I found was Joe Satriani. And it wasn't like I met Joe and I said, oh, I'm going to, he's going to be my vehicle for becoming successful. It wasn't even like that. I just really loved what he did. And I just knew that the only way people were going to ever uh, know of me and my work and and want to hire me was that I had to work on stuff that was going to be popular. So I always thought, well, if I like it, then other people will like it. And, you know, a lot of times I was really wrong about that. And and still, even today, I'm wrong about it. I There's a couple of times a year, um, I call them art projects, where I will take a, an artist or a band under my wing, mm-hmm. and I will spend time, energy, and money, typically my own, and help them out. I'll take them into a studio. I'll record them. I'll mix their stuff. Whatever I think they need. Sometimes everything, right? I'll do everything for them. And oftentimes I'm wrong in the sense that the response by the public wasn't what I would have expected. What? So you you do all that stuff on the front end, but what about the back end, the marketing? How I don't are, do any of that. Okay. I, you know, I just... I always tell the groups when I get together with them, I said, look, I'm here to help facilitate your art that I believe in. I believe that what you're doing as artist is relevant and it's enjoyable and I want to be involved. I think I can help. I think that I see some areas you're struggling in and I think that I can help you with those areas. But I want to just tell you straight up, once this thing is done, I'm not going to 
you, what we used to call shop it, <laughs> you know, take it to record labels and, and make them listen to it and, and tell them, you know, what great stars you're going to be and how much money we're all going to make. I say that is a job for somebody else and that I'm only interested in the art. So I will do that for you. But once you have your piece of art, it's going to be completely and totally up to you to do, to do something with it or do nothing with it. You know, it doesn't matter to me because for me, I at this point really do it for the love of it. I don't really do it for the money. Now, those are what I call my art projects. You know, I have to admit, there is a part of me that wants to give back to the community because I've made my living. I've made a really good living in the music business in the Bay Area, which is an easy, easy thing to do. And I am super grateful for it. And I'm humbled by it, really. And I want to give back to the community. Usually it's young kids who are struggling. It's really tough. Just like in the 70s, you know, when I was in a band, we didn't have any money. These bands that I, I run into now that I like and I think that they have something to offer, they don't have any money. Back in the day, there were, there were engineers and record companies and producers who took me under their wing and helped me out. And so I like to like do the same follow in their footsteps and sort of give back to the community. So I always have a couple of these art projects, I call them. I, I like to keep calling it art because if I call it business, it'll just make me crazy. I, I don't want to go crazy doing this. I just I just want to make good music. <laughs> well, dissect it a bit for me without, without, you know, I don't want to, you know, dig into your financial life, but can you dissect it a bit when you say, I've, I've made some money in the music industry in the Bay Area. Yeah. Where have you made that money? Okay. And what, because I think that that can get glossed over a bit for a lot of people. And they're like, how did he make his money? Yeah. Where's, where did the money come from? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fair enough. Well, I've been a musician, didn't make a whole lot of money there. Uh, I mixed live sound. Mm -hmm. uh, I made some money there. I managed recording studios and was a maintenance engineer, made some pretty good money there, uh, became a recording uh, engineer uh, for some artists that were pretty successful, mm -hmm. made some good money there, became their record producer, made even more money there because, you know, you're getting now the, some of the proceeds and back end, if they call it, from the sale of the, of the, of the records. Okay. Um, and then uh, I became a mastering engineer mm -hmm. at a really successful recording studio and made some really good money there. So I've had to reinvent my career a number of times over the 30 plus years. Um, and I think that's what is required. And I think that's what's necessary. I don't think people just one day get up and decide to be um, a recording engineer and then um, follow that line strictly to, to the ultimate end of being able to own your own home and, you know, do the things we all want to do right. with that in mind. I mean, I think that you have to be able to say yes to a lot of things, may, maybe make some mistakes, maybe get involved in things that, you know, you don't really want to be involved. I, you know, I I didn't really want to be, a, a, really want to manage a recording studio, but it was a way for me to have a studio that ran the way I wanted it to run with the gear I wanted in it 
and meet people that I might not have met otherwise and provide myself with some opportunities that I might not have had otherwise. And in other words, if you're sitting home, you're not meeting anybody. Right. If you're sitting home, you're not learning anything. So I felt that, well, if I, this studio that's really great, that's struggling, they need a really good studio manager. So I'd go over and I'd pitch myself. I'd say, look, I know how studios run. I've worked in all the best studios in the country. I know a good studio uh, when I see one. And I know ones that aren't run well, and I know ones that are run well, and I think I, I, think I know how to do it. Will you hire me? And uh, on two occasions, they said, yeah, because it can't get worse. <laughs> so, so in both cases, they, they took a chance with me. I did my thing. And in both cases, it worked out for a while until it didn't. And, you know, because, you, you know, it's recording studios have to continually adapt. They're adapting to a, a different clientele and, ada- and, and really adapting to a different um, uh, models that are presented to them by record labels and by, by indirectly through, um, you know, people who buy music. You know, if everybody wants this kind of music and you happen to be that kind of recording studio, then you're going to be booked. If you do something that's really specialized mm-hmm. and, then, and then, the, then the people who buy music aren't interested in that kind of music anymore, you're not going to be booked. So, you know, you need to continually look for producers and engineers uh, who want to use your facility. And that was always the thing because I came from an engineering producer side. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of friends. I knew a lot of people. I knew a lot of people at record labels. So I was able to use my influence and I could call a friend up and say, hey, man, I've got this studio in San Francisco. That's really amazing. I know you. I think you're really going to like it. I could get them to book the studio. Hmm. Where somebody who's maybe owns a recording studio but doesn't have those kind of connections, they couldn't do that. So I was able to uh, help a little bit with the bookings of the studios because I knew a lot of people and I knew what I needed to say to get them through the door, which is basically you give the place away. <laughs> right. And that was always the big problem were the economics. You know, you can always offer a beautiful studio with a, with a great assistant engineer. Um, there's studios right now today that are fantastic recording studios here right in the Bay Area that... Uh, I can walk in and, you know, pay them $400 a day to work in. I mean, that is ridiculous. That was years ago. That was half the rate 10 years ago. Ah, that's true. And it was, and and for $400, you would have been laughed out of the place 20 years ago. I mean, most of the studios that, you know, like the record plant, you couldn't even think about booking that place for under $2,000 a day. They wouldn't even consider it. The, the, The cost of the equipment continued to go up. The producers and the artists, they all demanded the next big SSL console. And, you know, the first one was 250000 Wow, that's a big nut. That's going to take – you're going to sell a lot of studio time. And then the next one was a half a million dollars. And the next one was three-quarters of a million dollars. I mean, it got insane. And then at the same time, the record labels are paying less and less per hour for studio time or per day for studio time. So the, all the recording studios, all of them, got to a point where they absolutely couldn't stay open. 
They just could not. It seems like today there are studios that they set the bar for what they're going to do. You know, they choose a console, you Mm -hmm. know, and they stick with it. They don't try to, maybe they upgrade the Pro Tools system every so often. Yeah. But other than that, like most of the studios that like Sharkbite or Tiny Telephone or, I mean, actually even Studio Trilogy, I mean, Studio Trilogy has covered their tracks in a number of ways by having an SSL, an API, and, you know, a side little room with just a, a D command or something. We got to put this in context. And the context has got to be, you got to think about what the music business was like, say, in the 90s. Yeah. Where there was boatloads of money and everyone was making money. Unfortunately, there were songwriters that were making maybe what they could have, but there was just a lot of records being sold and a lot of money being generated. So, you know, spending a half a million dollars making a record was commonplace for for a major label. And then they'd go spend another million dollars making a stupid video for MTV. I mean, seriously. So their demand for the latest and greatest stuff was constant and and the manufacturers are more than happy to oblige them you know ssl sold a lot of consoles Mm -hmm. and um and studer sold a lot of tape machines yes studer sold a lot of tape tape machines you know the the black boxes you know when i first started in the 70s you know we had a couple of compressors and a maybe a pull tech equalizer and a couple things are very simple and then the um the integrated circuit, the chip, the ICs began appearing in black boxes that did reverbs and uh, other special processing and eventually found their their, their way into uh, recording consoles where you could have, you know, 90 input recording console in a fairly small room mm-hmm. because everything was getting compact. Their things were all being put on uh, printed circuit boards and you could have these huge consoles. It just really continued to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and the consoles get kept getting bigger, and I might say hotter, which meant you had to have some serious air conditioning going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, then, then the PG and E bill, yeah, or the electricity people, bill goes up. And you know, it's funny nowadays. A lot of people forget that they go, yeah, hey, I'm building the studio. I found this SSL console, you know, for. $20,000, you know, it's really great. And I go, okay, you know, you're going to need a three ton air conditioner on your roof <laughs> and, you know, and, and your, and your, uh, utility bills are going to be about $4,000 a month. You know that, don't you? It's like, oh no, I didn't. <laughs> you right. know? When you're selling studio time at $2,000 a day and you got four rooms in full operation, yeah, you want a new console, you go get a new console. The bands want a new con. They won't work here unless we have a J9000. If we don't have a J9000, we're not going to get so-and-so. So-and-so won't work here. They're going to work at the other studio across town. So we better get one of those things. Mm -hmm. We better get a couple of new studers. Nobody's using the old ones anymore. Everybody wants the new ones. Oh, we don't have Dolby SR? Oh, we got to get Dolby SR. If you don't have Dolby SR, no one's going to work here. Oh, so now we got to go spend. The studios were all the money they were making; they were mm-hmm. dumping it back into gear. And there aren't, weren't that many studio owners that made a lot of money. I mean, really, they they just continually had to reinvest. And then the bottom dropped out, and everybody was stuck with studios, with huge consoles, huge utility bills, and no clients. 
the last five years I spent at the plant in Sausalito mm-hmm. was really, really difficult because day after day after day, I would wander around the building. Uh, a, a Neve console, a classic Neve 8068 console sat in a room unused day after day, month after month, year after year. Nobody could afford to spend any money at all to work in that room. Down the hall, a brand new J, uh, SSL J9000, beautiful SSL console, really nice, completely remodeled studio, empty, no clients. A surround room, a room that was designed and built primarily to do surround mixing, again, with a huge SSL console. It was so big, you could, you could land an airplane on this thing. Beautiful custom monitoring system. Empty. I think they did five surround projects the entire time. It staggering. was. It was. Yeah, it was staggering, and it was um, sad. And, and you know, it was like seeing a beautiful elephant stuck in the mud, and you know what's in the future for this elephant. I mean, it's going to die, and there's nothing anyone could do about it. the The money just evaporated. The phone stopped ringing. Record companies went out of business. In fact, all the record companies and all the A&R people we had talked to every day about bringing in acts were gone. They had been fired. I got there in 99, and I, the mastering room was built for me in 2000, and I stayed until the bitter end, until about 2008 when the plant closed. Wow. And I was the only, ironically, I was the only one there making money. Because mastering was still alive and well. Because people were still making records and they were still making them in their homes or wherever. And they still needed that service. They still needed their records mastered. So I had this beautiful room. It cost $250,000 to build. Yeah, they spent $250,000 on a mastering room in 2000. That's how confident they felt that the whole industry was going to turn around. Oh, this whole thing about surround sound. Oh, that's going to save the industry. When people get turned back onto audio and get a whole bunch of speakers around them and start listening to music again, <laughs> there, our studios are going to be booked. There, our studios will be booked. Yeah, and, and we've got a beautiful surround room and we're ready for it. We, we're going to probably turn down the work. I mean, the amount of... Um, uh, wishful thinking that existed at the time, you know, because really, I mean, nobody saw it coming. I mean, the record companies certainly didn't. Do you think that that those illusions of of this of some audio savior or whatever it is, whether mm-hmm. it's surround sound or or, or something, um, do you think that 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 is based on the history of? Oh well, now the CD's here, so now that's going to pump a whole new yes. jolt of money in. So yeah. there, so maybe the record industry is used to that. Oh, the new things here, we'll all make money again. Well, it like I had said earlier, it's always been a race. I mean, the way a recording studio um, could 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 remain r- relative and booked was by having the latest whatever, you know, fill in the blank, whatever that is. Whatever that thing is, if you have one of those, people will want to work in your studio. And they were sold this idea. And in fact, it came to fruition. I mean, it was true. We were told that, you know, uh, Dave Matthews was not going to do another 
record at the record plant, or excuse me, the plant in Sausalito, unless we got a J9000. Oh, man, really? Well, he was a big client. He comes in and books the place for a month or so at, you know, $2,000 a day. Do the math. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not, you know, you got to think about that. So what did we do? Sold the, the, the 4K, the, the um, SSL 4K, sold it for 10 cents on the dollar to somebody and went out and bought a used J9000 for close to a half a million dollars and put it in the room. Sure, Dave Matthews shows up, does his record and leaves and, and, and then goes to North Carolina actually and, and builds his own studio. So we never see him again. But now the studio is sitting there with a half a million dollar console that's been, you know, I, I could say partially paid for. <laughs> not, <laughs> you know? not enough. Yeah, I mean, but hardly enough. And, and who else is coming in behind Dave Matthews to work there? Was that prior to Metallica coming in there and the roof getting altered or, or some? Um, this was uh, af after that. This was after the alterations. Um, um, well, in, in fact, that, that there's another case there with Metallica who uh, threatened to never work at the plant again unless certain things were done. The rooms were too small. So they couldn't build the plant out physically you know, to the sides because there, there, there weren't real estate. So what they did is they went up. They put, they took a studio that I think probably had a 15 foot ceiling in it and they turned it into like a, a 40 foot ceiling or something. They, they did, they just, they went up <laughs> and made the, made, made the room bigger by going straight up. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, when you go in there and play drums or make noise, it sounded like a big room. Because it, it was. And that, you know, that got them to, to, to stick around and do another record or so there. The stuff they did with Bob Rock, that black record and some other record. And uh, that, so that got them, you know, but that cost a lot of money to do. Yeah. A but lot of money but, to do But that. I guess if you're the studio owner at the time and you look at the bigger picture, it's Metallica. We have to do what we need to do. There were just too damn many studios competing against each other. It's the old story, you know? I mean, if you've got 10 studios all competing, you know, one is going to win out. But it, ironically, the one that wins out is probably the biggest loser because they're the ones who had to invest the most into their studio to get the gig mm -hmm. that will never pay for itself. The, the medium ones who said, well, we're not going to do that. We're just going to cater to these people who don't need all that stuff. Those are the ones that, st that stuck around a little bit longer and survived. Ironically enough, Hyde Street Studios is still in operation. Yeah. Because they never thought big. They never said, well, we're not going to buy a new SSL. We can't afford it. They just stayed small and catered to a clientele that just continues to uh, work there and are happy. So. In spite of that neighborhood. In spite of the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> now, contrast the plant story to, uh, I think it's uh, on the 21st of this month, I'm, I'm going to go to the 17th anniversary party for Tiny Telephone. Mm -hmm. And John has acquired the Neve yes. from the plant. Right. And at some point we'll be opening a sea room in the East Bay. Yes. Um, it was funny. 
a good friend of mine and one of my favorite engineers, uh, Justin Phelps, oh, yeah. uh, who started at Coast Recorders on Harrison um, as an intern. I mean, he showed up one day on a skateboard and I really liked him. He reminded me of me when I was young. He was very ambitious, but polite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, he, had, he, he had gone to some recording school and had his head filled up with some ideas about what it would be like to be a recording engineer. So anyway, I took him under my wing and I taught him everything I knew over the course of uh, two or three years I was there. And um, he's gone on to be a uh, uh, quite a good recording engineer and is now uh, 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 lives in Portland and is doing really great. I mean, I always said, I said, Justin, you know, I, I've always been sort of a big fish in a small pond, meaning the Bay Area. I said, the thing for you to do, if you can go back to Portland where you came from and be the big fish there in a small pond, you're going to do a lot better than going to LA or going to other places and trying to compete with people who have 30, 40 year established careers. Mm-hmm. And he did that um, and he's be- and it's been quite successful for him and I'm really happy. But anyway, he was down visiting, he wanted to go over to uh, Tiny Telephone and I said, you know, I've never been there, why don't you take me? So we went over there, I met John, I think for the first time and he showed me his studios and he was telling me, oh man, you know, my dream is to have a Neve. I want a Neve 8068. That's the console that is the mother of all consoles. The one, you know, it says my dream is to own a, a 8068. And I'm thinking to myself, I know where there's an, uh, a Neve 8068. It's, it's sitting in a vacant building in Sausalito, you know, the former plant. The studio is basically owned by the bank at this point. The equipment was owned by an investor who took all the gear in lieu of getting his money back. And so I knew who that person was, and I contacted him, and I said, hey, are you willing to sell the Neve? Now, fortunately for Mr. Vanderslice, this was before that movie about Sound City came out. Oh. And there was virtually no market for a Neve console. I mean— who was going to buy a Amazing. 12-foot console? Where are they going to put it? This isn't something you put in a house. Only somebody who was going to build a recording studio would want this thing. You could part it out. You could pull it all apart and sew all the modules and stuff, but it would be a lot of work. Quite frankly, the owner of the console didn't want to see that happen. He didn't want to have that happen because he had a nostalgic thing about the console and about Neve and how he just wouldn't want. He always felt that console should stay in one piece. I said, well, I think I got a guy who wants to buy it. So I helped broker the deal. They worked it out. And sure enough, uh, John, bless his heart, bought the Neve. And um uh, I said, well, you know, you're, you're going to need somebody who can take this thing apart and rebuild it because it needs everything. I just want to tell you straight up, nothing on this console is working particularly very well. It's very, very old. It's 40 years old. I mean, come on. Wow. You know, switches and pots, you know, what, what they call in the real estate business um, – you know, deferred maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, consoles have a deferred maintenance too, particularly with recording studios that have been struggling for 20 years to try to, to pay their utility bill. You don't have techs going over that console every day, making sure every little pot and switch works. Says, John, you're going to have to fix this stuff. I recommended Gary Kreiman, who I think 
today is probably the only person, certainly in the Bay Area, that could probably understand and and rebuild that console in in the way Rupert Neve would be happy. In right. other words, really maintain the integrity of the console sound and its um, uh, features, but only only use the best um, uh, parts and wire. And, and uh, Gary is very meticulous in the way he goes about doing things. And, and, I, and you I, want that in a tech. You really want that in a tech. And Gary is, you know, really a dying breed. I mean, there aren't going to be too many guys who understand consoles like that anymore. And now when consoles break, all the new crap we have, what do we do? We just we send it to the manufacturer and they tear out the PC board and put a new one in and send it back to you. I mean, that's that's maintenance. Yeah. Or I they mean, just send you the PC board and say, do just it plug it in. Yeah, just plug it in. So Gary has been working on that console for almost a year. And it's going to be magnificent. Now, is John Vanderslice out of his mind for doing this? Absolutely. Oh. And he will tell you as much. So I don't mind saying that. No, no. no. <laughs> I told him, I said, John, it's the worst business decision I've ever heard. I had a console as good as that. Well, I even had the plant console for that matter. I couldn't sell studio time on it. What makes you think now today you're going to be able to sell studio time on it? And he just, he doesn't care. It's, it's, he's got this passion and his, this love for analog recording and Neve, and he wants to put it into a nice big room. And I say, hey, if you've got the guts, go for it. You know, and Absolutely. he's and, and he's going to go for it, and God bless him. Yeah, it's a, it's a business decision that's in especially after my my run at the Mission Street address. Yeah, I, I would never do. Yeah, but John has kept the San Francisco tiny going for such a long time. Yeah, that if anybody can do it, I'd put my bets on him. Yeah, yeah, I think that he's definitely got some huge challenges ahead. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that right now today, if there's anybody who's going to be able to um, uh, pull it off, it'll be him. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. You said something earlier that, that I want to come back to. You said, you know, if you sit at home, something to the effect of nothing's going to happen. And you eventually, yeah. you know, took on this these studio management roles. Um, with the internet and with, I guess, the, uh, the nature of a young person today, it's my perception that there's, in fact, you know, I've run into a lot of younger engineers that they just stay home. They never communicate. Maybe they do some Facebook stuff, but they never go out and they never network at all. Um, it seems like that's, that's a very valuable lesson for them in your story too, you may not like it right now, but it might be the thing that opens the next door. Yeah. I mean, I would wonder, I would wonder what it is that is drawing them to wanting to 
um, be in the business. You know, if it isn't, if it isn't the music, then what is it? You know, and and unless you're making the music yourself, and there are people who are very very talented uh, musicians and writers who own their own uh, home studio mm-hmm. and do their own recordings, and 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 oftentimes I'm surprised they do them quite well. And, you know, a friend of mine said, well, you know, that's just that monkey in the typewriter thing. And I think, no, I think, you you know, if you, you know, you, you got to be talented, you know, I mean, they, and there are people that are just very, very talented and they will always find a way to produce great art if, if you're talented. If you're not talented, then it's always going to just be a struggle. It always, it just, you can't get around it. Let's say that we took John Cunaberti into 2014, could there be another Joe Satriani uh, type situation? Could you repeat your career in this day and age, do you think? Yeah, and I'll give you two examples. And uh, and unfortunately, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know their names, but you could easily find them on the internet. Taylor Swift, who was her engineer when she first started working and is she still working with him? The answer is yes. Uh, uh, Lord, Right, who had their her huge record this year? One of the biggest records, the Royals. Who's her engineer? I know I, I can't remember his name, but he's a young guy who uh, is also uh, a writer and arranger, and helped her uh, make that record, her album. You know, so there they exist. I mean, there are people who are just inherently talented or ambitious or both, ideally, mm-hmm. that do find themselves in the presence of a extremely talented individual that needs their help. You know, this person might be able to sing and write and play, but they don't know how to record it. And if you if you could find that person and help them out, then, you know, you're going to open some doors to other opportunities. And that that totally makes sense to me. But what what seems common is is the loyalty question. It's like, what what kept Joe yeah, I went, sticking with you? Well, I you know I why I, why I, does yeah. Taylor's engineer stay, or or why does Taylor why, stay with that engineer and Lord and? Yeah, I mean be, because they're certainly in a position where well now I've made it, you know I don't need you anymore. Exactly. I think it could swing, and it often does either way. I think that if you believe that this person who showed up. Out of, out of nowhere or maybe a relationship that's developed over a few years where you've developed trust with this person in a control room situation, you know, they brought something to the party that helped make your career. That's really a valuable asset. That's not something a smart person would, would just reject, you know, or, or I'm moving on now. Now, I know in, in Taylor's case, her last, her new record, her last record, she switched gears. She got out of country and is is and is making a made a pop record. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that the engineer that she had been working with and had a tremendous success with may or may not have been that involved in the new record. But in the meantime, that guy can go around saying, you know, I've made these- some of the biggest country records in the last you know decade and i guess that is the uh, the silver lining of if the loyalty eventually erodes you can say legitimately hey, hey i th- did these th- records hey this is art and i don't think it's written anywhere where an artist has to uh, be confined 
to a particular team. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you got to think about, you know, like like you mentioned the guy at home, you, how do you make create opportunities if you sit at home? Well, you can't. You got to go where the music is. You got to go out in the world where there's music, where people are performing music, and you have to listen to it and be inspired by it. You know, I want to if I hear somebody doing something that I think is really really great and I th- believe that I can contribute in some way, I will go to them and say, I love what you do. Is there something I can do? This is what I do. Is there something I can do that can can help you because I want to be involved in your art because I really believe in what you're doing? Well, that if, if even if they agree to that, that doesn't mean that 10 years from now, they still have to work with me. It doesn't obligate them to some sort of uh, long-term relationship. It's not a marriage. It's really about, you know, there's a short-term goal, which is to produce the best art possible. And um, I think in uh, Satriani's case, he needed somebody that he knew that he could trust because we go back before he was a solo artist, when he was in a band called The Squares, that's where I met him. And we developed a relationship. And he knew that um, I brought a certain level of integrity to the process. In other words, I showed up on time, <laughs> um, you know, and, and the quality of my work was uh, good enough for what he was doing. And I was reliable. And I was... I wasn't a pain in the ass. So, you know, he gave me a shot. We made a record. People responded well to it. We made another record. People responded well to that. We did a couple of other things. And then it was time for a change. You know, he knew, his record company knew, his management knew, everybody knew that Joe was about to make a change here. And I knew that when a recording artist talks about making a change. The first to go is the producer and or the engineer. <laughs> that's just, it's just written, you know? I was, and, and you know what? I, I was perfectly okay with it because by then I had people kicking in my door to work with me because I had done those records with Joe. So, you know, it, um, it was fine. It worked out fine. Your decision to, to, to go into mastering mm. Uh, obviously, it wasn't driven 100% by, by, you know, financial gain. But, uh, you know, there's obviously a curiosity there. There is, you know, hey, I've been to a million mastering sessions. I now know what these guys are doing. Why can't I do this? There's yeah. not black magic going well, there, on here. Uh, um, there, were, there was more than one reason, uh, and, and there always is. I think for me, I was not getting the gigs as a recording engineer slash record producer that I wanted. In other words, I got, I think what they call in the business, um, typecasted, you know, in other words, people saw me as a, as a heavy metal rock guitar producer or punk, you know, because of the work I'd done with the the Dead Dead Kennedys. Kennedys. Yeah. And, and that was kind of like the only work that was coming to me. I just don't want to keep making Joe Satriani records with people who want to sound like Joe Satriani. I mean, I, I've done a couple, you know, I just said, that's not what I want to do. There's so much other music in the world that I love that I want to be involved in. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of gigs I I wasn't getting that I felt I was qualified to get because people just saw me as a certain type of engineer because of the records I made, which was kind of unfair. I mean, I remember this one act whose name I won't mention, who was very, very big. 
And uh, even as a vocal act, they had pretty famous lead singer. They flew me to New York for an interview and picked me up in a limousine and took me to some high rise in Manhattan to interview a, a recording engineer to make a rock record. You know, the whole thing was kind of ridiculous. And um, we go around this table and everyone's asking me questions. The drummer's asking me, you know, what, do I use samples? And, you know, and the bass player was wanting to know, you know, do I, how I mic is, you know, the bass and all these kind of rather mundane, silly questions. I get to the lead singer and he goes, I'm not in favor of hiring you because you're not famous for working with, with, with singers. So I don't have anything else to add next. And that killed it. That was it. The meeting over. Wow. The lead singer said, you've never worked with anybody who can sing. Therefore, why do I want you to be a producer? At that point, I'd probably made a thousand records. Only, only six of those were guitar instrumental records that I'd done with Joe Satriani. But that's all he knew about. So therefore, I was just not even on his list. And so getting back to your original question about why I wanted to become a mastering engineer, my first reason was so I could work on music besides the ones I had been, you know, typecasted in, in, into doing. Right. You know, I wanted to expand my musical palette. I wanted to work on other projects besides these ones that are, I was being given. The other the other reason was is that I really felt I could do it well. I had always gone to the mastering sessions on records that I had produced or engineered. Mm -hmm. uh, Bernie Grumman, uh, Bob Ludwig, uh, George Marino, all mastering engineers I sat with. And um, during the period where uh, you know, we were cutting vinyl with the lathes and stuff. I always felt, well, I'm never going to own a lathe. I'm never going to be able to learn how to cut a record. But once they turned to digital and they were just making uh, CDs and everything was in the digital domain, and I started working in the digital domain, you know, later, maybe 10 years later with Pro Tools and stuff, I got to a point where I said, well, I can do this. I can do what they're doing. That seemed, yeah, it seems manageable. Yeah, it was totally manageable. You know, plus it was a, just a good business decision for me. It yeah. was something I wanted to do. I, I, I'd get to meet other artists, you know, and maybe, and in fact, what's happened is, is since I've been doing this is a lot of these, uh, a lot of my clients will say, hey, do you mix too? And I go, well, yeah. And they go, well, there's this one song we're having a lot of trouble with. Will you mix it for us? I said, fine. I just finished one two days ago. There and, seems to be like taboo things that recording engineers like don't think you should do. And some people, you know, fr frown upon the, oh, he mixed it and he mastered it? Impossible. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think in the perfect world, mm -hmm. a recording engineer, mix engineer, um, would probably prefer to hand off the mix to a, a, a mastering engineer, I think, in the perfect world. Mm -hmm. Not, I don't think in every case, but a lot of times by the time you're done mixing a record, you're, if you're honest with yourself, your objectivity is questionable. And turning it over to a mastering engineer who you admire, who might be even a mentor and someone you really trust, I love it. I mean, anytime I've been given a project to mix, and there is a budget to hire one of my mentors, I will absolutely go for it. Absolutely. For the same reason I would 
I would tell a recording artist that, hey, yeah, you kind of get your stuff mastered. I mean, you can't you can't put that out until you know that process has taken place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I believe I really do believe it's an important process, and um, you know, I'll stand by it. As a recording engineer, as a mix engineer, I would always want to have somebody do it, somebody with the objectivity to make the, you know, make those last four or five percent uh, changes that that may be necessary. But I have worked on projects where uh, the client, it's not in their budget. By the time the recording's done and the mixing's done, they're broke. <laughs> yeah. They don't have any money. They're not going to spend $2,000 or $3,000 to have Bob Ludwig master the record. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. So in those cases, I'll do it myself. Yep. And I'll do the best I can. I try to stay objective. I try to stay away from the project as long as I can, you know, for two or three weeks if, if possible. Um, and then try to come at it uh, objectively like a new listener might. And then I, I go about it and I do the best I can. You're a, you're a Pro Tools user. Mm-hmm. Do, you, is it, do you use Pro Tools to master with or are you using something else? Or Yeah, I use Pro Tools to do all the mastering as far as um, any, any of the EQ, the leveling, of course, the, any editing that might be done. And then I produce a set of files for instance, if it's a 10-song record, I would end up with 10 songs um, uh, mastered. And then I import those into Soundblade. You know, it's it, the heritage is Sonic. Sonic Solutions. Okay. Sonic Solutions was really the only game in town, particularly in the United States, for, for disc mastering. They pretty much set the standard for it. Their latest generation of uh, mastering as far as a a piece of software that allows you to assemble uh, the the audio in a way where you can um, produce what we call parts for replication is still uh, quite doable and quite usable. And it's it's actually a, a relatively inexpensive program. I mean, I just use the LE because I don't use... I don't use any of the plugins. I don't use any of their no noise or any of that stuff. All I basically use it for... It's called Sonic Studios, what they call it. All I use it for really is assembly. I take the the um, uh, the WAV files that have been prepared in Pro Tools, and I bring them into Sonic, and I just assemble them. In other words, I create the sequence, and uh, do I enter all the metadata. You know, certainly the the, the titles of the songs and uh, ISRC codes. And then I can uh, produce, um, there's three things you can produce. You can produce a CD master. You can produce a DDP master, which is uh, typically what we send to a pressing plant for replication. And another nice little feature they have is a thing called Secure Player, which is a small application that you can send your client that they can open up and basically play the CD in their computer. With with the sequencing, it has the spacing? The, yes, the sequencing, the spacing, the ISRC codes, all the titles, all the metadata is there. They can print it and they can even burn their own CD. So if I'm working from, uh, you know, with a client who, who's out of the country or across the country, uh, I can send them the secure player 
I, you know, use whatever method they want, do it through Dropbox or I like WeTransfer. I get it to them. They open it up on their desktop and it's like playing a CD. And that way they can they can ref it. They can listen to it and decide if they want any changes made. If they want a change, they can email me back. I can make the change and then fire off another one. And it's all done very quickly. And that way they're not basically getting a product that you send them and haphazardly importing it into iTunes. Yes. God knows what the settings are. Yes. And then not hearing the sequencing as you anticipated. Right. Yeah. Oh, no, that, and that is a big problem. I mean, a lot of times, yeah, if you just send somebody uh, WAV files, for instance, even if you've dither, dithered it to 16 and they're 44.1 and it's like, re you know, ready to be burned onto a CD, a lot of times you're right. You, you know, they'll open it up in iTunes and iTunes is converting it to an AAC or MP3 or something. Right. <laughs> you know, oh, and, sounds... and then they're complaining to you about, about, about the way it sounds. So this is a way to sort of avoid the problems with that. Huh. Yeah. So you're at a point now where you're mastering at home, you're mixing at home, and economically that makes sense. But when you track, obviously, I assume you don't have a band show up at your house. You book a studio, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, I would not. Um, I made a promise to, to my wife and my neighbors <laughs> that if they that if they went that if they went through uh, with this with me, I mean, if they you know allowed me to. Uh, take a part of my house um, and turn it into a studio that uh, I, I, w I wasn't going to um, have, you know, strange, weird invaders, you know, showing up in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, the thing is, is that the way music is made today, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's unfortunately in some ways it's it's kind of isolating. Everyone's off in their bedrooms and off in their little project studios making music, you know, we're not all together in one big building anymore making music. I and mean, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And I, quite honestly, I do miss it. So when I do get an opportunity to go to a studio and work with a band and do a recording, which I have to do in a studio because they have uh, the, the amount of gear that's necessary to do a recording, because you need a lot of mic pre's and you need, you know, you need a console, you need a good monitoring system, you need a headphone system. Good infrastructure. You need a boys and girls bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there are things you don't think about when you're, you know, you think about it, but you know, what, what studios offer, a lot of it's transparent, but really, I think it's really like a hotel, you know, you're, you're running a hotel, you have to have parking. Like I say, you have to have clean bathrooms, you have to have a place for people to hang out and not bother you, you know, what they call a lounge. Uh, you have to feed them. I mean, these are all things that have nothing to do with music. Hmm. So if you're going to have a studio in your house, you got to think about this stuff, you know? And I grew up in studio, so I already knew that. So when I said, you know, to my wife, you know, I'm thinking about doing this at home, but don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure her eyes were like, Whoa. yeah, I mean, don't, yeah, don't worry. I'm not going to have people coming over here. So all my sessions are unattended. All the mastering sessions are unattended. I think for the most part, I think most of my clients are okay with that mm -hmm. uh, because of the the way I structure my fees and the way I structure the the way I go about um, providing them with the service. I think there are occasions where I'll get a project and I'll just say to the client after maybe a couple of conversations, you know what, I think you would be better off going to a mastering studio and sitting down with a mastering engineer 
and working with him on your project. Because I think you really uh, know what it is you want. You're, you seem like you're really hands-on and you want things a really special way. And I think what you need to do is find yourself a master engineer who will take direction like that and do it. See, I don't operate that way at all. Um, that's not to say I don't expect and, and, and even want notes about, you know, what they're giving me. I, of course I do. I need some direction. Right. But basically my philosophy is you give me your project, hand it over to me because this is something you can't do. You can't master your own record. You've admitted that. Right. Maybe you've tried it and it didn't work. Or maybe you've even gone to somebody else and it didn't work. You're going to bring it to me because you believe I'll be able to do it. All right? So there's some trust there. So I say, okay, fine. So you're going to give it to me. Basically, I work on it as long as it takes until I'm happy with it. Now, that can take, I don't know, to do a whole album, it could take as little as maybe three hours. Are we talking about mastering? Yeah, we're okay. talking about mastering. Uh, I could master a record in three hours, complete, mm -hmm. or it might take me three days. I don't know. I don't know until you give it to me. And I can, I can absolutely assure you, I will spend as much time as necessary to get it to a point where I'm happy with it, okay? At that point, I'm gonna send it to you. You haven't paid me a dime yet. You're going to get it. You're going to listen to it. You're going to decide then whether or not it meets your expectations. If it meets or exceeds your expectations, awesome. At that point, you pay me, right? If you want some changes made, that's fine. We'll, we'll, make, we'll make some changes. If you listen to it and go, wow, this is all wrong. He really took this <laughs> down the wrong road. He's definitely not the guy for me. If that's their experience, then I'm fine with that, and they can walk away. They don't owe me a thing. How many times does that happen a year? It happens maybe twice a year uh, out of the 100-plus I do a year. And you've never had a situation, I assume, where somebody said, no, nah, I don't like it, but then they secretly went off and used it. Um, I have no real way or desire to... Um, you know, chase up, chase after, chase after that. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like I say, it's only a couple of times a year and it's art, you know, I mean, it's art. I might think I've done a great job. I might think that I've completely saved this project, but if they listen to it and they go, wow, this is all wrong. This is n not what I want. Mm -hmm. And they send me an email with five pages of detailed notes about all the stuff I need to do to get it right for them. That's when I say to them, you know, I just don't think we hear this project the same way. And out of respect for you, you need to find somebody who, who gets it, who gets what you're doing. And maybe you can sit down with them and with your notes and go through all this with them. Now, have you ever had a situation where a client will say, oh, okay, hold on a second. No, actually, I do want you to do it. Let's just have you do it your way. Yeah. Yes, that does happen. A lot of times, some of the clients, they don't understand what it is they don't like about their final result. Right. You know, when you first start a recording project, you have a lot of 
uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of uh, wishful thinking. Maybe you're not even terribly realistic about your abilities and and you really think it's going to be awesome. And then by the time you get to the to the mixing stage, you're already starting to doubt yourself. And by the time all the mixes are done, you may even hate the project. <laughs> you might even think, I don't know anymore. I There's so much wrong with this. And now I'm going to turn it over to a mastering engineer and maybe he can fix it all. You know, they just basically will have unrealistic um, ideas about what can be done in mastering. And if I sense that from the client, um, I will have to talk to them about that. Like, well, what is it, you know, you don't like about this? And, and I'll tell you, one red flag is if they tell me that they've had other people master the record and they don't like it. And I go, whoa, oh, really? Um, hmm. uh, who, who, who mastered the record? And they'll name some, some guy I know who I think is really great. And I think, oh, oh what's going on here? You know, that, there's no reason why he couldn't have mastered your record. So now I'm wondering what's, what's really going on. So I go, well, what is it you don't like? Well, you know, it's not like this and not like that. And we really wanted it to be like, you know, like they might name some bands. But we really wanted it to sound like so-and-so. And, but it didn't come, it didn't turn out like that. So we're thinking, you know, maybe there's something you can do. You know, you've got one of those things you can, you know, you do some stereo spreading and, you know, they have all these crazy ideas about what a mastering engineer can do. And, you know, they're not realistic. And, you know, I'll say, listen, you know, I think that, I think maybe you need to spend your money remixing your project, not spending money on mastering, because I don't think you can, you can get there from here. I've listened to your project and I know what it is your expectations are. And I, I, I think I understand what it is you want. And I don't think what you're giving me can, will ever get there. So out of respect, I'm going to pass on your project because I'm thinking to myself, the worst client in the world is the malcontent, you know, where no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many days or hours you spend on a project, they're never happy. They hand you a chocolate chip cookie and, and expect you to remove the chocolate chips and still have it look like a whole cookie. Absolutely. And, it, and it's, it's incredibly frustrating for me and for, and for anybody in that position. Do you take the same approach with your mixing? Do you, as far as the payments and all that, or is that a different well, you approach? Well, know, no, actually, um, I do. And <laughs> I've got friends of mine who are mixers who, when I tell them this, they go, you are out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> you might think I'm out of my mind too, but this is this is this is how I do it. If somebody contacts me and they want me to mix their project, I will say to them, "Well, um, is there? Can you just send me a rough mix, or do you? Is it posted somewhere, or do you, is it on YouTube, or you know, where is it? Where can I hear it? Do you have a rough mix of it? Let me hear. Let me just hear the project because I have to first." Before I'm going to take on a mixing project, I have to really get what they're doing. I mean, if they're doing some music that, like, I just don't, I don't like, mm -hmm. there's some genres that I'm not particularly inclined to want to listen to for any great length of time. Yeah. And, and mixing really requires a lot of work. I mean, you're spending hours and days and days and days with this. And out of respect for them and what they do, you got, I believe you have to love it. If you don't love it, you don't think you can bring something to the party, don't take the gig on. 
you know, a younger guy who maybe isn't paying his bills might take that on. But I got a feeling that he's going to regret maybe he did, yeah. you know? Fortunately, I am in a position, you know, I've developed a career and I'm in a position where I don't have to take everything that, that's offered to me. And so I'll listen to it and I'll go, hmm, yeah, I'm, wow, I love this. This is really, you know, I think I can, I think I can really... You know, I feel like I can bring, you know, like we say, bring something to the party. I can actually add to this. I can, I can mix this in a, in a maybe new and exciting way that I'm going to enjoy. I'm going to enjoy mixing this. Mm -hmm. So I'll say, okay, this is what I want to do. Send me one song that you believe is representative of the whole album. Don't send me the acoustic vocal song when, when it's a full on rock band with 30 tracks. Don't do that. Send me one of the songs that, that, that is, you know, representative of what the rest of the album is going to be like, mm -hmm. All right? So they send that to me, um, usually as a Pro Tools session or just the WAV files that I'll import into, into a Pro Tools session. And I'll basically spend three or four hours just listening to the recording, thinking, oh, well, <clears throat> boy, I'm going to have to replace a lot of these drum tracks or, boy, this needs arranging or... Um, a lot of this is out of tune. Do they want me to like correct the tuning? Uh, you know, there might be a lot of things wrong with the recording. So I will um, basically go through it and, and determine how much work is going to be involved in, in, in mixing this one song mm -hmm. and whether or not I want to, I'm still trying to determine whether or not I even want to take it on or not. Because if they send me like 80 tracks or 40 tracks and the, and the recording is just diabolical, I'll just go, no, I, I, I don't have the time. I just don't have the time or wherewithal to deal with all this. It's just a mess. I'll say it in a respectful way. But if it's something I think that I can do yeah. and it's within my reach and I don't think that it's uh, flawed technically – in a way that's kind of a deal breaker, you yeah. know, like if, like if the vocals are are all out of tune and distorted, but yet they want everything in tune and not distorted, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, how, how do you fix that? You know, you can't. So what I'll do is I'll sit down and I'll mix the song top to bottom until, like with mastering, until I'm happy with it. They may give me some input about, you know, we like this, we don't like that, but I will do whatever I feel I need to do to make this song as good as I think I can make it. And it, it may even require editing. I may not even use everything they give me. They may give me eight guitar tracks. I may only use three of them. Mm -hmm. They may give me five vocal tracks. I may only use one of them. I, You know, I don't know. But I will just do whatever I've got to do to that so I like it. So I can like listen to it and go, wow, this is really cool. I really enjoy listening to this piece of music. And then I send it to them. And if their response is, holy, you know, I, this is amazing. I never thought you could do that. Uh, this is fantastic. Um, which is the response you want. <laughs> which is the response I want. Um, then I'll say, fine, pay me X amount of money. I don't charge them by the hour. Mm -hmm. I charge them by the song. We work a lot in the same way. Yeah, because I'll I'll look at it and I and if I see like, you know, twenty tracks, I'm thinking to myself, day and a half. Yeah, it's a day and a half. So I'll so I'll go back to them and say, I, you know, you need to pay me. My fee is going to be a day and a half rate, you know, or a two day rate. 
that's what I'm going to want. If you're going to use this mix, that's what you got to pay me. If you're not going to use it, then we can just part ways now, take it, have fun with it, whatever. I don't care. We're done. We're just done. Not often because it doesn't happen that often, but a couple of times the client will go, wow, we really like it, but it's not for us. It's not our band sound. You've mm -hmm. kind of taken our band sound and done, <laughs> done, something. done something to it that's not us. Do well, they ever... We really think it's cool, but it's not us. So we don't think you're the right guy, but we want to give you you know, some money for your time. And, and out of respect for me and, the, and obviously the two or three days I might have spent on it. And, you know, that's fine. I might take it. I might not. It depends on my relationship with them. But if they do like it and they are excited and they want me to, to do a song, uh, to, I mean, to do the album, I'll say, okay, fine, pay me. So they pay me for the one song I did, all right? They send me another song. Or at that point, they can just send me the whole album. I'll pick another song. I'll mix it. I'll send it to them. And we'll go through the same process again. Do you like it? Yeah, we think it's great, except for maybe... The background vocals are too loud. Okay, fine. I'll fix that. Boom. Okay. How many know, revisions do you allow? I will do endless revisions as long as I believe it's getting better. Okay. The moment I feel like they're just effing with me or they don't know what they're doing or the, or the song and its presentation that I have envisioned is being highly compromised and now it's not better, then I stop. At that point, I go, look, take it or leave it. You know, I'm not going to just continue making this. What I gave you, I believed in. What I gave you, I stand by. What I gave you, I believe is the best I can do. Now, if you want those background vocals down a half a dB in the chorus, fine. I'll do it for you. It doesn't compromise my vision of your uh, of this mix. I'll do that for you. If you want the guitar solo to be a dB louder. Okay, I'll go ahead and do that. It's not a deal breaker for me. I'll go ahead and do that. So what is a deal those breaker? kinds of things. Oh, what's what's, what is, what's the deal breaker? What's well, the thing that thinks you throw up your hands and go, I'm done? Or I'm not the guy. Um, if they said, Oh, we sent you the wrong bass track, uh, we're gonna send you a new one. Mm, okay. So I insert the new bass track. And then three days later, they go, oh, you know what? We want to redo the guitars. We're going to send you some more guitar tracks. D d just don't even use those. Because now that we're hearing them in the mix, we don't like them. Okay, so then they send me guitar. You know, stuff like that. That's, that'll just drive me crazy. And then finally, I'll just say, look, I'm done. You know? What drives me crazy is when they say, do you think the vocal's too loud? N no. I gave it to you yeah. as I wanted to give it to you. Yeah. Why would I? You think I'm... You think I'm screwing with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in those cases, you know, because I work in the box, if they want a vocal up or down, that's like really easy for me to do mm -hmm. because I can just generate that that mix. You know, dB, dB and a half. A dB and a half is quite a bit when it comes to like a, 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 like a lead vocal. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't mind doing that. But again, if I end up dropping the vocal down into the track to the point where I can't make out the lyrics, that's a deal breaker for me. And I'm going to say, hey... This is not working anymore. I'm not, I don't even want my name on this mix if people can't hear the lyric. Because the lyrics are important to this song, yeah. in case you guys haven't noticed. <laughs> and do, so, do they ever come back and go, whoa, we really like the mix, but we can't afford it? We can't afford what you've... What you've oh, no. Well, I'll, I'll, once I review all the tracks, I will go to them and go, look, here's the deal. I'm going to go ahead and do this. Okay. If you like it, you're going to pay me X amount of money. 
if you don't like it, you don't owe me a thing. And, and they they will look, always agree to that. Okay, so they, they know ahead of time. They know ahead of time no what I charge shock. per song. So then I'll get another song, I'll mix it, I'll give it to them, we'll go through the same process again. If they like it, they pay me for that song. It's a pay as you go. Who knows, I might get into this record in, in a five or six song and, and a couple of things could happen. They could run out of money. Yeah. Uh, we could be hating each other by then. You know, I mean, it's possible. It's possible there are stinker songs coming up that I, I don't know about that they're all neurotic about that are going to create huge personality issues between me and them. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I love that stinker but, but see, song. But what I want to avoid is them paying me in advance for a whole album. Mm. Or worse, them owing me for four, five, six, eight, ten songs I've mixed that they haven't paid me yet for. Because one song we don't agree on, and they're all pissed off because I agreed to do the album and we're all we're stuck on this one song, so now they're not gonna pay me for the rest of the record. I've heard stuff like that. I'm going, I ain't gonna do that. Hmm. See, back in the day when we had record labels and I worked for record labels, this was never a problem. Because with a record label, I'd always go, okay, I want 50% upfront and 50% uh, on completion. That uh -huh. was kind of typically the way um, we structured a record making with engineers and producers, half upfront, half on completion. And there would be a contract, of course. Uh -huh. So when the record was done, you get paid. Now, whether or not they wanted to use it or not use it or release it or not release it or hire somebody else to mix it or whatever, that was totally on them. You still got paid. Yeah, because see, it's not the it's not like the band is working a day job. You know, the, the, the guitar player is working at Starbucks all day to earn earn money to pay you to mix his record. It's not like that. It was a record label. Right. Who was putting up the money. So... You know, it, these those kinds of problems really didn't exist. But nowadays, you're dealing with a, a clientele of people who really don't have the resources to spend ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to mix a record that no one will buy. I mean, really, what are they going to do with this record? They may make a thousand copies and sell them at gigs and maybe make their money back. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like best case scenario. You know, they, they're basically advertisements. They're, they're pieces of art. They're, they're ways to get your music out into the world and hopefully develop a fan base. You've got to develop a fan base. The only way you can develop a fan base is by, by continually feeding people who like what you do your art. And mm -hmm. then they like it. They talk to other people. They tell other people about it. The word spreads. And pretty soon you don't have you know, 20 people coming to a show, you got 100 people coming to a show. And then next month, there's 300 people at the show. And, you know, you got to have music, you got to have it on YouTube, you got to give it away, you just, it's just got to be out there, you got to, you got to have your art available for people when they want to hear it. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
But there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled sampley.app. Check it out. Let's start to wrap it up a bit and, and think about engineers out there of all experience levels, beginning uh, your experience level, my experience level, all the varying degrees. What's your advice to send to those people, those engineers, for survival in the 21st century in the current ecosystem of where we're at? I think that you have to have a genuine love for music. I think you have to be motivated by the desire to produce great art. I think that has to be the absolute number one priority. If you pursue that, I think good things will probably follow. If you go at it like, I hate my job at, you know, Starbucks, and I want to be a full-time recording engineer, if you and pay my bills doing that, if you go about it that way, that is not probably going to work out for you. I would suggest keep your day job and go out in the world and find music you're attracted to that you can uh, support, help support in some way. If you've got a small home studio and you know of a singer-songwriter somewhere who doesn't, you've got yourself a team. You got a studio, they got songs. Spend your weekends with this person and learning how to uh, record records, make make music mm -hmm. and, and pursue it in an artistic way to, to try to produce the best art and music you possibly can. And, and pursue that. Don't try to pursue the money thing of it. Don't be all caught up with, you. what should I charge the guy? I, I would always say, do you know? I would I would encourage people to do it for free. I mean, I yeah, I think that the way you establish a reputation and a you know a, a, a fan base of people who want to hire you is by producing great art. So as a recording engineer, you have to be with people who are producing art. You're not unless you're making it yourself. Basically, your job is to. Uh, turn it into a medium, into something that can play out a speaker. They need you. Uh, a singer, songwriter, a band, whatever, they actually need somebody that's going to be able to, to turn it into something tangible that can be played. If you know how to make a video uh, of the band uh, you know, in HD and get it up on YouTube for them, that's, that's, that's something maybe they can't do. But if you can do it for them, that's going to help them. And, you know, you have to pursue, you know, making the best art you possibly can. And then when you learn how to do that, it may take, depending on how talented you are, it could take six months or it could take six years. Mm -hmm. Right? And you get to a point where people go, hey, we want you to do that. We heard that recording you made with uh, Mike and his sister 
at your studio and it's really, really good. We want you to do that for us. And you go, okay, I'd love to do that for you because I really like what you're doing. I like, I like the music you're doing too. So we can do that. Can you pay my expenses? My expenses are just real. I don't really want a lot of money for this. And they go, oh, sure. You end up developing a relationship with them. Your expenses are getting paid and you're producing yet more good art. And then more people hear that, and then it becomes a word-of-mouth thing. It has to be word-of-mouth. It's the only way you'll make it in this business is through word-of-mouth. There is no yeah. shortcut to that. There, it, there just absolutely is no shortcut to that. Otherwise, forget about it. Just, you know, go to law school, become a lawyer, and try to get a job at a law firm, you know, or, or become a doctor because, you know, we need doctors. And you'll get a job as a doctor. If that's what you want, if you want a sure thing, if you want a sure job, if you want a sure income, that's the kind of fields you need to pursue. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're nothing more than a guitar player who can't play guitar sitting there going, hey, you know, I want to make a living playing guitar. Well, how do you do that? Well, you practice every day. That would be good. And you have to be talented, you know, and talent is a relative thing, you know, and it's a gift. Um, some people have it, some people don't. Mm -hmm. People who don't have it have to practice more. People who are super talented, if they practice a lot, they become superstars. <laughs> Joe Satriani practices every day, two hours a day. He sits with his guitar and plays. You know, he's not one of the greatest electric guitar players in the world by accident. You know, he's very talented, but he also really works hard at it. Well, it's the same thing with an engineer. You know, you got to do it every day. Well, how are you going to do it every day? You do it every day by going out and offering your services for free to everybody you can find. <laughs> then you just fill up your time with, with doing it. You know, recording this band, recording that band, recording your cousin, recording the going down to the um, open mic. You go to an open mic right? Those open mic things they have in cafes. And you sit there until somebody gets on stage and sings and plays a song that moves you. You go up to that person and go, I want to record you for free. And they're going to go, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Nobody's yeah. going to turn you down. Yeah. So you go and you make some art and you learn something. You learn about mic technique. You learn about singers. You learn about the recording process. You develop a relationship with this person. You go and you do it again. You do it over and over and over and over and over again. You get to a point where your books are full with jobs. And then what happens? People start coming to you, wanting you to do stuff for them. And at that point, you start charging them money. You go, well, you know, if you want me to, to, to work on your project, this is what I need to do it. This is how much money I need to work on your project. And in the beginning, you know, you keep it mm. at, a, at, at, a, at some affordable rate. But in the beginning, you just do it for free. You could almost look at it like a, let's put it in the social media context of, say, Twitter. Mm -hmm. You want followers? You got to follow people. Yeah. And eventually, people will start following you. Yeah. One final bit of advice, too. What is your financial advice for, for, the, for the freelance engineer? What's what's the mentality? You've already kind of talked about it in terms of don't necessarily chase the money, chase the art, and the money will follow. But well, are you talking about a, a a freelance engineer who's already making a living being an engineer, or one who's not making a living being an engineer? Uh, both cases. Okay, and you know maybe maybe sure. to to the thought process of you know the obsession of gear. Your yeah. lust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Paying your bills. I'll, I'll answer that. It's very easy question. Very easy answers. If you're not making a living currently as a recording engineer, 
keep your day job, whatever, I mean, what, whatever you're doing, <laughs> whatever it is you're doing in life that's paying your bills, keep doing that. And then do as many recording projects as you possibly can stomach. Just continually meet people, continually offer your services for free. Obviously, if you're not making a living as a recording engineer, it, it, it's either because nobody knows about you or you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. Right? So how do you change that? Well, if nobody knows about you, then get known. Well, how do you, you go to nightclubs where there's bands performing and playing. You go to uh, outdoor concert. You go, you know, one of the things I did, I would go like uh, over to um, like North Beach or uh, Fisherman's Wharf and there would be uh, a lot of street performers. Some of them are really good. Singer song, people playing guitar, singing really good songs. And I would bring them into the studio and record them. Hmm. You know, street musicians, there are some really talented street musicians, and they would love to record. Well, go record them. You know, go make art. Go record until your name gets out there, until people start asking, who's doing this? This is really good. And you be, you meet people. You're, you're networking. You're meeting people. And, I don't, you know, people say, oh, you should join all these if you join all you Neris and all that stuff, yeah, fine. What you're going to do, you're going to find yourself in a room with a bunch of other unemployed recording engineers, exactly. all bitching and moaning about the old days. Exactly. You don't need that. D don't. I'm not saying don't do that. I, I think it ha it serves a purpose, but I think more importantly, it's better to go listen to the opening act at a local nightclub because those are young kids who ain't making a dime, and find out what it is they need. And then service that. They need some mastering done, go master something for them. If they need a recording done, go, you know, go record it for them. They mm -hmm. need to record a live, they need a live sound engineer, go do that. In other words, work, 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 say yes, say yes to everything until you're no longer an unemployed recording engineer. You become a record, you know, you become employed. Right. For the guy who's already employed, who's right. already barely making it. Right. You know, with with um, uh, clients, let's say he has a client base. He's got he's got pretty good reputation. He's working at some of the local studios. He's kind of just struggling a little bit, maybe even as a day job, a little day job that he's he's willing to quit at any moment, trying to make it to that next level. Mm -hmm. I would say there's a couple of traps one falls into. One is in you. You sort of alluded to it about the gear lust. And that what I find a lot of young engineers doing who are barely making it, they want to buy gear. I understand that. But at the end of the day, the clients don't care about the gear. What the clients care about is your talent, your ears, your skill, you know? And don't tell me you need a particular piece of gear to get a job done because I don't believe you. There is no one microphone that you can go out and spend your rent money buying that's going to make your project any better. It's just, that's a myth. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need all this gear to make great records. You know, you just don't. There's so many little studios around town that are filled with gear because the guys that own them love gear. There may not even be very good recording engineers, but they love gear. That stuff is available. Go use their stuff. If you've got a home studio... Only get the stuff you need to do what it is that needs to be done. Don't 
buy more stuff than you need because basically you're going to make yourself poor and then you get all bitchy and moany and people don't pay me enough. Now I can't go do that really cool gig I love for next to nothing because I got to pay my bills because I bought all the stupid gear I don't need. Exactly. In other words, the priorities are wrong. You know, the your priorities have got to be um, getting your name out there and making as much art as possible. It's really making as much product, getting as much of of the projects you're working on done and out the door and into the world as possible, making as many connections as possible. That will open the door. Nobody is going to come to your studio and want to hire you because you've got a thing, you know, a thing, a box or right. a microphone. At the end of the day, people are going to judge you by the results. Mm-hmm. And if you've done it with a little inexpensive Cubase system and uh, a couple of sure microphones and they're happy, then if they're happy, you should be happy because you, you've you succeeded. They're, they're artists. They're producing art. They have a vision for their art artistry and you want to help them. Uh, faci- you want to facilitate that for them. Mm-hmm. So once you've done that, you're, you're a winner. You don't need to go out and buy a $2,500 Neumann microphone to, to accomplish that. Now, I'm not saying that maybe the vocal would have sounded a little bit better. It, maybe it would have. Mm-hmm. And maybe someday you'll be able to afford that. But right now, you got to concentrate on putting out the, the most amount of music as possible. You need to find those artists, and they're out there. They're out there. God, I mean, I'm amazed at how many wonderful, talented, amazing musicians there are just walking around now. And if they're represented from an audio perspective in yeah. the correct way or, or or in a pleasant way, yeah. that could bring more people to the table. Yes. And you never know which one of these people that you brought in under your wing, if you want to call it that, who who may be hugely successful. Yeah. You know, if your response to their music is overwhelming, like, oh, my God, that was really a great song. That person is very, very talented. If that is your response to that, to them, chances are other people are going to feel the same way. You know, I mean, you have to kind of go with that. It is a bit of a leap of faith. And I think a leap of faith is what's required when you meet raw talent. You know, you have to uh, try to imagine how, how you can help deliver what that experience that you just had. You know, like, like if you go to a, uh, an open mic and you hear a folk singer sing some song that's really moves you and you think of yourself as a producer and you think, wow, what can I bring to that? What, can, what, what, what needs to happen to get that out into the world so other people can have a, a similar reaction that I've had? If it's simply just getting them recorded properly with one microphone and a nice little preamp, you know, without screwing it up in the recording, if that's all that's required, then then that's what that's that would be great. If it's wow, I know some musicians. If if I could put together that could back this person, and we could go in and do a recording that I think would be really nice, then do that. You know, act as a producer. More emphasis on <clears throat> the, the the art and the music, and less emphasis on the gear. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you can sit in your room and stare at your gear all day and think about how cool it is, but if you got if there's nobody in there singing or playing, then what's the point? 
You know, you got to find people. They're out there. They need you. That's what I'll tell recording engineers. There's people that need you. You got to go find them. They're not going to find you. Yeah. They're, you know what they're doing? They're assuming, this is what they're assuming. We can't afford it. And I, and I find this all the time. I mean, when I approach uh, artists, there's a, a folk singing duo, um, Aquiles and Cloud, uh, 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 a girl and a boy. Uh, they're probably in their late 20s. Super talented singers. They just had a record release party uh, uh, the other night. I love these two. They're super talented. They write great songs. And um, I heard about them and I, and I, and I just, I, I emailed them and I said, listen, I'm a recording engineer. You probably don't know me because they're young. <laughs> and I said, I'd really like to bring you in a studio and record you. And they go, well, we can't, we can't afford that. We, we, you know, that studio, I mentioned it was like a, a fantasy Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll like to bring you in there and record you. They go, well, what's that going to cost? And I go, no, no, it's free. I love what you do. I want to support it. Come on in. So they came in. I spent a little bit of my own money and uh, recorded them for, I don't know, four or five hours, maybe four hours. They recorded eight or nine songs around a couple of microphones. And it was lovely. It was a wonderful experience for me. I love listening to their music. I love listening to that recording. They enjoyed it. They shared it with their friends. It's out there in the world. Um, and we'll work together again. We've developed a relationship. Um, it's, you know, it's relationship building. It's, and it's relationship. And I loved doing that. And that, you know, they would have never, they wouldn't have gotten on the internet and looked for me specifically. Right. <laughs> you know, or called Fantasy Studios and said, hey, will you give us some free studio time so we could come down and stand around a couple of mics and sing our, our, our eight songs? They would never do that. Extremely talented and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing it. So as a recording engineer, it was really rewarding for me. They didn't pay me, but I got paid. But I think it's an, it's, it's an investment in the future as a possibility. Well, you know, that's a good point. It could be. Mm -hmm. And if it's not... I don't care because I still have the recordings I've di I've done with them that I'm going to probably enjoy for the rest of my life. That's yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about anyway, isn't it? Really? I mean, we're just making art. <laughs> we're just making yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really at the end of the day, I, the only reason why I'm in the music business is cuz I love music. There's no other reason to do it. I mean, you would never do it to make money. Ever. It's, it's That's not, not a, to say that, that if you're really good and you're talented and you're smart, you can't make money. I, I would argue that you can. You can, yeah. Yeah, you can. But that's not why you do it. Because if that's why you do it, you're going to be a pain in the ass. <laughs> you're going to be one of those, you're going to be one of those engineers that goes, okay, you know, we agreed that you'd be here for three hours, but it's been three and a half hours. So how about you kick me another uh, 50 bucks? You're going to be one of those kinds of engineers. And you're going to turn people off and you're not going to ever make it. You'll you never make it. You'll never make it in this business with an attitude like not, that. Not a nickel and dime attitude, no. No. And they're, you know, I've ran into them. <laughs> they're out there. <laughs> yeah. It's such a people-based business. It's such a personal relationship business. It's such a uh, trust business. People have to trust you, you know? When my little folk singers decide that they want to make another record, I think they're probably going to call me because they trust me. And I, you know, if I was, you know, 20 years younger, I'd probably go to a club tonight and I'd go look for a band. I'd go look for a recording artist. 
I mean, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to hear some music that's probably too loud and have a few drinks. I mean, you know, life, life's, life's tough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, go, go have fun, you know, and listen to what other people are, are talking about. You know, if you're in your 40s, talk to your friends that are in their 30s and 20s. You know, who are you listening to? Who do you like? Have you gone to a club and seen an opening act that you really liked? Who are these people? You know, one of the things I learned early on as a record producer is when you first meet the band you're about to do a record with, you got to like sort out where the power is. In other words, who <laughs> in the band holds all the cards? Because it's always that way. Mm -hmm. they, they, they always talk about, oh, our band, we, you know, it's all a democracy and we all vote on stuff. That's nonsense. Basically, at the end of the day, there's one person in that band, he or her, who's writing the songs, right? And it's their vision. And everybody else is kind of going along for the ride. There might be a co-writer some of the time, but usually there's one person. That person is often the lead singer. Not always, but often. Well, that's the person you need to please. So as a record producer, I always make sure that me and that person are okay the whole, through the whole process. You, if you lose them, you lose the project. Because they're the ones who hold the cards. They're the ones who have the power in the band. You know, you don't, you don't start hanging out with the drummer. If he's, not the, if he's not singing and he's not writing songs, you don't spend all your time hanging out with the drummer. And making all the decisions with the drummer. And making, yeah. And having the, yeah, having the singer tell you about all the, his problems with the singer. You know, you, it's just not a good policy. So you go when you go to these clubs, you see these bands. You might just you might just latch on to the singer or just the songwriter in the act, mm -hmm. you know, and go from there. You don't necessarily have to take the whole band on. All good advice. I appreciate you coming out today. So there you have it, John Cunaberti. Really, really great interview. So after I was done talking to John, I assembled the interview and I sent it to him and he actually had just a couple things he wanted to add. So I'm going to read something that he sent to me that he asked that it be read after the interview. So he says, and I quote, I mentioned in my interview that there were recording engineers who were able to recognize something special in a young artist, stick with them in the tough times and were later rewarded. At the time of the interview, I couldn't remember their names. I think it's important that they're mentioned by name not only because they deserve it, but because I believe they're great examples of how to make it as a recording engineer today. Nathan Chapman recorded demos with Taylor Swift that helped her land a record contract. The record label wanting a hit hired big name producers and their engineers to produce the album. Taylor, who was only 16 at the time, hated what they did and demanded that she work with Nathan again. The label agreed and the, that album sold 10 million records. And John continues and says, Joel Little, was a well-known musician, producer, engineer in New Zealand when he first met Yelich O'Connor, who was 17 at the time. We now know her as Lord. Together in his home studio, Joel produced, recorded, and mixed Royals that won a, won Song of the Year, won a Song of the Year at the 2014 Grammy Awards. This is not being in the right place at the right time. This is being committed to the artist and their art. One can do this a hundred times without reward other than the art, and that's got to also be okay. So that's follow-up from John. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Thanks for tuning in. As usual, please go and like us on Facebook. If you're a Twitter person, do the Twitter thing. But go over to workingclassaudio.com. And if you ever have any questions, always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. If you've got special requests for guests or questions you want me to ask upcoming guests as we announce upcoming guests, uh, feel free, always get in touch. Uh, and thanks for listening. I appreciate you taking the time. Bye-bye. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.